You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Great to be back with you all today. Definitely carried you all in my heart to South Africa and back and thrilled to be back home today with you all. So welcome to week two of something we're calling Living Out of a Living Hope. We're taking a look at the letters to the Thessalonians, looking at what life in light of the resurrection might look like. And our scripture reading today is from chapter two, verses one through 12. Here we go. Paul writes this, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though... As apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We, we work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That's the reading of his word today. All God's people said, Amen. Yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was having a conversation with one of my neighbors. Uh, we were just getting to know each other. And as always, particularly with men, some of you men may find this to be the case, uh, with men, the subject of our work and our professional lives came up. Uh, so what do you do? He asked me. And I can promise you, when you are a pastor, it's always going to be a good time. <laughs> when someone asks you that question, and you answer truthfully. <laughs> and you don't just sort of vaguely reply with, I run a nonprofit. <laughs> so so I, I told him the truth, and what had been a pleasant conversation took a sideways turn. Oh, really? That's interesting, he said. Could feel the anxiety, you know, the anger begin to rise. And he said, Well, uh, I used to go to a church and believe all that stuff. He said, but I don't anymore. There were too many hypocrites there, too many hypocrites there, and the pastor was too. He did a bunch of bad things, and so my wife and I, we don't go anymore. And the church, it didn't even care about the community. It only cared about itself. Now, I don't know how much of that was true or not, but that's what he gave me to work with. And so I said in return, I said, I'm really sorry. You know, I've lived through some of that too myself. And then I went on to tell him, 
about you all, about us, about this church, about Mosaic, about the stuff that we do in the community. And I told him that God loves him, that there are so many great churches in the world and in this city. And as I said, all of that, I could sense him getting more and more worked up on the inside. So I kind of paused. I looked at him as kindly and said as gently as I could. I said, who knows? I said, maybe the fact that we are neighbors and we are having this conversation is a sign from God for you. (laughs) That he loves you. He wants you to know him. That you could know he's good. That you can know that there really are pastors and Christians and churches who are really sincere. Maybe that's why we're neighbors here together. And he paused. He looked back at me and he said, maybe but I doubt it. (laughs) All right. Now, what was all that about? What all that was about was what 1 Thessalonians 2 is all about, which is this, which is that if, if trust in the messenger is lost, trust in the message is lost. If trust in the messenger is lost, trust in the message is lost. When the reputation of the messenger becomes in doubt, the content of the message is cast in doubt. And what you see here in Paul's letter to the first century church in Thessalonica, this is most likely the earliest New Testament document we have. It's written roughly 49 AD, most likely. It's within 15 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we see here is Paul's Understanding. Paul is a former Jewish persecutor of Christian churches, now turned church planter. We see Paul's understanding of what living out of a living hope looks like, which is this. Living out of a living hope looks like living a life of integrity. Living out of a living hope looks like living a life of integrity. See, Paul, in order to make sure The gospel endures. Paul here, chapter 2, he makes a case for the inescapable, irreducible, and undeniable need for integrity in his own life and the life of the Christian church. Because, Because if trust in the messenger is lost, trust in the message is lost. And I think this is an important, maybe even a critical conversation to have right now. You look over the news the last few weeks, you had another big sports sex scandal thing happening, another huge political scandal thing happening with people losing their jobs, universities losing their reputation because of a lack of integrity. I think this passage is pulse-poundingly providential to look at right now. So let's do it. Let's look at Paul's defense of his life and ask three questions. First, let's ask, why does integrity even matter at all? Like, what's the big deal? Number two, what does integrity do? Like, how does it show up? What does it look like when we practice it? And finally, in the end, where does real integrity come from? Why does integrity matter? What does it do? And where does it come from? Let's go here, number one, and ask the question, well, why, why, does, why does integrity even matter? And to answer that, let's get to why Paul is even writing this chapter, chapter two. You can kind of get the hint of it here in verse one. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. So Paul, as he writes this letter, is showing you he's not in the city of Thessalonica anymore. Why not? 
Well, Paul is writing them remotely because he's forced to flee for his life after receiving repeated death threats. And he had received these repeated death threats because the new Christian community he had planted in Thessalonica was flourishing. Acts 17.4 tells us the background about what was happening here in the city. Verse 4 of Acts 17 says, In Thessalonica, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number. Would you say large number? Large number. Of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few, say quite a few, prominent women. So his visit, as he said, was not without results. It was successful. He had begun this flourishing multi-ethnic community comprised of Jews, Greeks, and a number of female celebrities who were using their, apparently their Romagram accounts, sorry, to post about their newfound faith. And so an angry mob formed to intimidate, persecute, and end the church. And some of us get grouchy when our groceries are delivered late from H-E-B. Okay. And when they came for Paul, Paul's friends convinced him to flee to stay alive. Now, but because he left, now the same people who had threatened to kill him were going around to accuse him, smear him, tarnish his reputation. They came around to the church, to the Christians there with three basic accusations about Paul. These accusations made their way back to Paul, and now he writes this chapter to address them. The first accusation was that Paul was a coward because they asked stuff like this, where is he now? Hmm? Now that we've threatened to kill him, (laughs) he left when times got tough? Like, did he really leave when things got hard? Like, you know, you just can't trust a person like that. Your pastor, where is he? He's not even available for you. I thought he said he loved you. And by the way, isn't this how the enemy works and twists words? Because if Paul stayed, they would have killed him and called him a failure. But because he left, he's a coward. See, a dark heart can twist anything. The word of his accusations reached his ears, and so he answers back. He says, did they say I'm a coward, like I'm afraid of trouble? In verse 2, he writes this, hey, remember, we had previously suffered and been treated, here's the word, outrageously. In Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. He said, look, I'm not a coward. Before I ever got threatened in your city, I had suffered in another. I'm like a frequent flyer in the Roman culture, unfriendly skies. Second, Paul was accused of being greedy. His accusers were also saying, hey, Thessalonians, he's only here for your bag. I mean, why would else, why else would he be, you know, reaching prominent women? Hmm? It's only because these are some rich ladies. He's only in it for their money, like everybody else. So Paul says, verse 5, oh, you know we never used flattery. We weren't flattering these women, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Paul says, I'm not in ministry for the money. And third, Paul was accused of being power hungry. His accusers were saying, oh, so he used the term apostle, did he? Hmm, that's interesting. He's big time now, is he? Okay, all right. Well, who even put him in charge? Why does he even get to lead? Especially if he's a coward and greedy. I mean, sounds like he's just on a power trip. 
So Paul answers right back. Verse 6, oh, we weren't looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. So he does say, yeah, I got a kind of a badge here. I have met the risen Lord Jesus personally. Y'all remember that? I have been commissioned by the other apostles. But come on, Thessalonians, did I ever come across as power hungry to you? I've suffered to bring you the gospel. All right, all right. Now, have you ever had to do something like this before in your own way? Have you ever had to do this for yourself, like defend yourself against your critics. Now, almost all of us, I think we probably have, whether we were justified in doing it or not. Like, I've made plenty of defenses of my choices to my wife, Carrie, only to find out I was simply defending the indefensible. You know, she helped me to see, you know, quite clearly. And all your husbands, you should be nodding. Yes, that's right. I've been doing this all along. It'll help your day go better if you do this. But in almost all of those cases, what I was defending, what you defend, what politicians defend, we defend ourselves for the sake of ourselves. We defend ourselves to get ourselves off the hook. But the Apostle Paul is so unlike us here. He's not defending the messenger just to defend the messenger. He's defending the messenger in order to defend the message. He knows that if his reputation is shredded, the gospel in Thessalonica will be as well. He doesn't care about his reputation, but about the reputation of the gospel. He doesn't care about his own well-being, but about the well-being of the gospel. And so, to make sure the reputation of the gospel message endured, to make sure the reputation of the Christian faith remained intact, to make sure that the person of Jesus Christ was not called into question, Paul, here in 1 Thessalonians 2, goes about making a defense for his integrity. See, integrity matters. Here's why. Because the gospel matters. Integrity matters because the gospel matters. Integrity matters because I grow weary of having a conversation like I had in my front yard. And maybe like one you've had in your front yard or backyard or office, lunch break, play station, wherever. And see, integrity matters because the gospel is at stake every day, all the time. I'm going to preach it real good to you right now. That's why you treat people kindly. That's why you show up on time at work. That's why you forgive. That's why you do good work when you work. That's why you get the counseling you need if you need it to work out your past pain so you don't project that on everybody around you. That's why you don't cheat on your taxes, cheat on your tests in school, or cheat on your spouse. And why when you give your word, you keep your word. Integrity matters because the gospel matters. That's why it matters, number one, Paul shows us. So what does it do? What does it look like? What does gospel-motivated integrity look like when it shows up in a public place, in a community, in the world? Number two, what does integrity do? Well, this is fascinating. Integrity is sort of a surprise to me as I studied this. Shouldn't be, but you'll see why. Uh, integrity matters also because of something surprising integrity creates. Integrity, Paul's about to show us, matters not only because the gospel matters, but because integrity creates and sustains family. Integrity creates and sustains family. And you can see this through the use of three family-specific metaphors Paul uses to get across what the church of Jesus is supposed to feel like at some level. 
First, first metaphor, he says something so shocking here in the Greek that translators are literally fighting about it 2,000 years later. This is probably the most enjoyable part of this uh, for me to study and find out, like these folks are fighting about this one word. And it's because while your translation may say in verse 6, we became gentle among you, that didn't quite get it. The NIV, which we read today, gets a little closer. It says, we were like young children among you, but that didn't get all of it. Because literally, in the original Greek, Paul says, I was like, not just gentle or a young child, I was like a nursing child among you. Most translators can't even bring themselves to put those words down. He says, remember how I behaved when I was there? Like, I was so vulnerable with you. I was like a baby. I didn't act like the man of God. I acted like little Timmy over in the nursery, like some of these little babies you saw on the stage today. He said, it's like you could have picked me up and burnt me. That's how I acted. Why? Because integrity creates family, because true integrity looks like means, becomes vulnerability. One of the absolute masters of this, I'm going to honor her for a moment. She was here in the first service. This is my wife, Carrie, because Carrie's got a knack. When she's at her best, I think for being vulnerable herself and creating spaces and places for people to be the same. She does it with her person, with her words, and with our home. And one of the reasons we love hosting our community group. And by the way, if you're looking for a group, you're welcome to come to ours. You may just want to let me know you're coming first. Okay, tonight at six. But uh, we host this to help people find and create a kind of spiritual family. And recently our group was taking turns sharing positive things from each of our lives. And Carrie shared about something great that recently happened with one of our kids. It was a really great story, like a victory kind of moment for one of our children. But Carrie ended it with this. She said, and... We'll see how they do from there. <laughs> Not in a way to discount the accomplishment, but just to acknowledge you never know how long a good thing is going to last with the person who's newer in life's journey. We'll put it like that. And someone in the group popped up and said, well, that's like, that's a miracle right there. Like, she said, that the, the wife of the pastor, not the pastor's wife, by the way, because that title never appears in Scripture, thank you very much, that the wife of the pastor wasn't just bragging about something great her kid did, but she was vulnerable about how she felt about it underneath. See, that moment, that motivation helped create family because that's what integrity does. But let's keep going because Paul doesn't just stop there. He flips the image around for a second metaphor. He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. So he says, I wasn't only and ever like a child. I was also like a mom who nurses. Now, don't get it twisted. He's not doing some weird, you know, unorthodox gender ideology thing here. No, he's just drawing on what all Christians should be able to draw on, which is the nurturing instincts of the one true almighty God who said himself, he sometimes was like a mother who nursed the nation of Israel. So Paul says, I'm like that. I'm like a mom who nursed you. Now, that all sounds great and heartwarming, but moms who have nursed know this. Nursing is both meaningful and maddening at the same time. 
Because when you first have children, remember going to the hospital and seeing the posters on the wall encouraging moms to nurse, the image they give you is of a mom uh, with a baby with a soft, you know, uh, you know, ambient light in a rocking chair having a delightful moment together. And the baby nurses, and apparently in this, you know, one image story goes promptly to sleep, happy and satisfied. And that can happen, but what can also happen is not the meaningful 3 p.m. feeding, but the maddening 3 a.m. feeding, because at this point, the mom is exhausted, and maybe, maybe moms, you're a little grouchy at that point, justifiably so, because, you know, your husband, who before the baby came was such a light sleeper, a cricket rubbing his wing out on the porch would have woken him up, right? But now, miraculously, has developed a life-saving evolutionary adaptation to sleep through the baby's cry a mere six feet away. It's a miracle, right? The mom, you go to pick up the screaming child, you hold it to your breast, and now the child at first refuses to suckle like he or she was literally yelling for you, waking you up out of a perfectly good sleep. But now the child won't feed on what they need. The child needs literally what's inside you to stay alive, but they won't take what they were just yelling for. It's maddening, and that's not only what it's like to be a nursing mother, Paul says, that's what it's like to be a pastor. (laughs) Been waiting for that moment (laughs) for 13 years, but it's, it's true. And he says, that's what I was like among you Thessalonians. I held you when you cried. I was at your funerals, there for your weddings, prayed with you when that child broke your heart. I taught you and I preached the gospel to you and I nursed you and it was exhausting, but I did it. Why? Because of where true integrity comes from. It comes from love, from love. Integrity creates family because true integrity is self-giving. Like You're not just doing what's right, for your own sake, but you're doing what's righteous for the sake of others. But Paul isn't just in there. He actually gives you a final family metaphor, one that can make some of us maybe even nervous. He says this, for you know, remember that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So he says, I wasn't just like a child, wasn't even just like a nursing mother. At times, for the sake of integrity, I was like a father who dealt with you. At times he says, yeah, I exercise, Paul's word, not mine, authority in your life as an authority figure. And of course, by the way, we should all acknowledge that we all love the idea of integrity-filled authority in a church until the authority comes to deal with us, right? But how should it be done? How does a godly father deal with his own children? Paul says this, three words. He says they encourage They comfort, and they also urge you, like press you, push you to live a life worthy of God. A whole lot of encouragement, a whole lot of comfort, and yes, sometimes strength 
and toughness, which means this, at times, parental leadership, at times, organizational leadership, some of you know this, and at times, church leadership requires the kind of strength that only a good father has, and a father that won't stand up and define his children and point the way, humbly, who won't intervene and exercise discipline in order to give a church or his children the opportunity to be at their best and to live a life worthy of God, isn't the father or by inference, the pastor, his children, or church needs. But Paul was. He was like the father his children needed. He was like the mother they needed. And he was like the child they needed. He created spiritual family through his integrity. And you can too. I can. That's the good news. We can too when we're vulnerable here with one another. When you give of yourself here, you don't just take here church, right? When you lovingly urge others to not sin, but to live a life worthy of God, we can create a kind of family. Why does it work like this, though? In the end, why does it show up like this? It's because of, number three, in the end, it's where gospel-motivated integrity comes from. In the not-too-distant past, Share a moment here. I had a moment I wasn't particularly proud of. Here's it was. One of my son's coaches, he was playing sports at the time. One of my son's coaches and I had had uh, some communication uh, and agreed about how my son was going to be used on the team. This was important to do because uh, this prevents potential overuse and abuse in this particular sport, which happens all the time uh, with a person like my son in the sport that he plays. But I felt like in one game after that communication, what had been agreed to wasn't honored. The coach didn't keep his word, but I let it ride, and at the next game, it happened again. So in the middle of the game, I walked over, and I barked at the coach, expressed my frustration very directly, and clearly in the middle of the game with what was happening. Not my finest moment. You could say I had a right to do it. You could say I was just standing up for my son. I was holding the coach accountable to his word. But it was definitely not the right way to go about it. And I felt terrible afterwards, like super guilty, super ashamed. In years of sports, I, had, I was coached myself, never done something like that. So I, I emailed the coach. I set up a breakfast. I took my son with me. And I apologized to the coach, my son sitting right next to me. And the coach was kind enough to accept my apology and he said, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that, like I'd heard you were a pastor, you know. <laughs> I said, it's not true, I only run a nonprofit. That's <laughs> my <laughs> <laughs> pastor. He, of course, the geek expressed his disappointment. It had even happened, but we went on to have a nice breakfast and I think a positive relationship after that. Why do I tell you this? Well, first of all, so there won't be any question of what some of you might be tempted to think today, that I'm here in the high seat, like some expert, while you're there in the low seat, the failure. You know, no, no. I should have let you know, man, I am in need of this as well. But I also to share, I share this, to try to get at where true integrity comes from. That moment did not come from just looking at myself. What do I mean? Think about it. Where did Paul's integrity come from? Did it just come from him naturally? Like, was he just some, like, you know, naturally born moral exemplar, like an out-of-the-womb boy scout, God's finest 
born with integrity. No, read Romans 3. None of us are righteous. Not one, no. Where did Paul's integrity come from? Look at what's just below the surface here in the passage. In 12 verses, Paul references the literal name of God eight times. It's almost every verse. He says stuff like, with the help of God. God is our witness. We're approved by God, worthy of God. God tests our hearts. See, commentators say 1 Thessalonians 2 is one of the most, here's the word, theocentric passages in all the New Testament. That is, it's rich in God language. What they mean is this, that this passage is kind of like a steak. This conversation about integrity is like a steak. A good steak may sizzle, and a good steak may smell good and should, but basic the basic building block of steak is what? Not steak, but protein. Protein's at the core. And in the same way for Paul, the basic building block of integrity was not himself. He didn't sizzle. It was God in him that had so changed him that he could taste like this to others. Think about it. A man who had previously encouraged a mob to kill a man named Stephen, the first martyr, a man who had torn families apart, thrown folks in jail, acted like a mobster, now says, I'm acting like a baby, like Timmy in the nursery. Yeah, what can produce that? Paul says, it's only this. He uses the name of Christ one time in connection with his role. He says, I'm an apostle, not just of God, but of Christ. Paul is saying, I belong to someone, to a savior who became so vulnerable, he himself literally became a nursing child at his mother's breast so that we would know that God knows what it's like to be us so we could trust him. Paul is saying, I belong to Christ who himself was also like a nursing mother. Jesus says he was like a mother hen who longed to gather his children underneath his wings in order to protect him. And Paul is saying, yeah, I belong to a savior who's strong as well, who knocked me down on the side of the road to deal with me, who blinded me and sent me to serve my enemies so I would live a life worthy of God. And for all of it, Jesus Christ, like Paul, was arrested and accused, and like Paul would be one day, Jesus Christ was killed. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, he rose from the grave, which means this. It means that we, like Paul, do not have a dead hope, a dead religion, a dead philosophy on which to base our lives or root our integrity. Paul did not have a dead hope and dead religion, dead prophets from the past or dead temples. Paul knew Jesus was risen and had conquered the grave and had defeated death and he was Lord and worthy of Paul's life, whether Paul lived or whether he died, whether he had a good reputation in his church or not. And he knew that Jesus was worthy as the Son of God, as the risen Messiah, as the ultimate hero, not just to receive praise from him, but praise from all creation. And if, therefore, Jesus was worthy of that, he was worthy of Paul living a life of integrity right here, right now. Because when we live lives of integrity, last thought, here's what we're doing. We're rehearsing the resurrection. When we live lives of integrity, we rehearse, we act out the resurrection. When we live lives of integrity, we point others to the fact that we believe there is a Savior who has risen once and is coming and returning again to put all things right. So, here's my question. Where are you today? Hmm? Is there some area 
of integrity, wholeheartedness you need help with for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your family, the sake of perhaps your kids or grandkids. Let me just encourage you in a moment. We're going to have our prayer team come forward and available. And for the sake of the gospel, the sake of your family, would you come? Maybe you even confess, ask for help for the sake of the message, friends, church. Let's be wholehearted messengers. Would you say amen to this? Lord, we come and we ask you to give us the grace to be this and become this, to embody the gospel message. We can't do it perfectly. We need your grace today to do the next right thing, the next right thing. Put our next foot in front of the other in a way that brings restoration, wholeness, help, healing, all this. We thank you for it today. Help us to be these kind of people. For the sake of the message and the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.